Like many of you, Roxy and I have been following what's happening in Israel and Gaza over the last three weeks as much as we can. And it's a hard moment for many reasons, in part because the news is so fast moving and accurate news seems hard to come by. This moment is also so hard because we know these are not just headlines. Thousands of lives on both sides of the conflict are at stake. What's happening in Israel and Gaza, of course, has a long history, and it's often called a quote-unquote intractable conflict. Whether that's true or not, we believe we can offer you all something unique right now. Information and formation. So let's get information. I see what you did there. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two Christian women living in New York and trying to make sense of a baffling world. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. It's in moments like this when I am really glad I have so many journalist friends, especially religion journalist friends. And so, Mm. Roxy, this is your cue. (laughs) And this is a tall order, I realize. But Mm. we would love for you to give us an overview of what has been happening in Israel and Gaza over the last three weeks. Okay. (laughs) I can. I will. With the caveat that the news is very fast moving. And I know more will happen between when I am saying these words and when you are hearing them. (laughs) But I will try. Of course. Thank you. So maybe to start, take us to October 7th, when most Americans were seeing these headlines coming out of Israel and Gaza. What happened that day? Well, we know that hundreds of Hamas militants crossed the border and invaded towns in the southern part of Israel along the Gaza border. These militants, they killed 1,400 Israeli men, women, and children. Hmm. This was indiscriminate killing. And they invaded people's homes. Hmm. They rampaged a music festival that was a music festival for peace and killed many young people there. They also took at least 200 hostages back into Gaza. And as I'm sure many people have seen, these hostages were all the way from very small children to elderly. And those hostages, as of this recording, are still being held. And just to be clear, like, who is Hamas? What do we need to know about this group? Hamas is an armed Palestinian militant group. They govern the... 2.3 million Palestinians that live in the Gaza Strip, which is a very small portion of land on the southwestern part of Israel that borders Egypt. And it's one of the most densely populated places on the planet. And it's important to know that Hamas violently seized control of Gaza in 2007 from the recognized Palestinian Authority at the time. Hmm. It's 
one of Palestinians' territories, two major political parties, whereas the other one is sort of a more moderate party. I think what's really important, the majority of Palestinians who are under the age of 20, by the way, more than half of the Palestinian population is under the age of 20, they don't want Hamas. They see Hamas hmm. as dangerous and militant and mm-hmm. as terrorists and as not good for Gazans, ultimately, and for Palestinians. Mm. We see Hamas, they've carried out suicide bombings. They've sent rockets into Israel for years. They do not want Israel to exist in the Middle mm. East. And that is their stated goal. You know, there's a lot of of fear and anger and hatred toward Hamas, both within Israel and within Gaza. That's super helpful. So going back to the events of October 7th, there's this horrific loss of life, just seemingly indiscriminate killing of civilians. What happens after that? Well, there's a lot of outrage globally, as well as obviously in Israel. And Israel vows to retaliate. Um, And so they launched airstrikes into Gaza. They've been preparing a ground strike. They've also told Palestinians in northern Gaza to evacuate and go to the southern part of the country. So hundreds of thousands, some have said a million Palestinians, are on the move. They've been displaced. And again, it's a very small strip of land. So there's not anywhere for a lot of people to go. And the airstrikes have already done a lot of damage. Uh, Many thousands Mm -hmm. of Palestinians have been killed, most of them civilians. A hospital was hit, an Anglican hospital, and we're, you know, there's a lot of blame going back and forth over whose rocket hit that hospital. Hmm. An Orthodox church, the third oldest church in the world, was hit. We know that that also Palestinians have, they don't have a lot of food, they don't have a lot of water, electricity is hard to come by, internet is hard to come by, so there's Hmm. also just a lot of concern about humanitarian aid and how to get it across these borders that are very closed down. So it sounds like, you know, obviously there is so much outrage and grief over the loss of life over these terrorist attacks from Hamas on October 7th. And also there's this recognition that Palestinians who are not aligned with Hamas are meanwhile suffering in this very tiny strip of land because of this conflict. This is an issue that people have a lot of opinions about, and it's something that is not is not easy to navigate. And as a religion journalist, there is a lot of religion tied up in this too. And mm-hmm. we're seeing um, a lot of people, you know, here in the States that, you know, as we cover this, like this is, there's no easy way to talk about or to cover this war and without inflaming Mm -hmm. a lot of tensions. Yeah, and it also seems important to say that there's this long history of conflict Mm -hmm. in this region that spans two centuries. And so part of what we're seeing is people understandably having very strong reactions and feelings about what is happening without Mm -hmm. always understanding, like, how did we get here? None of this happened in a vacuum. There's a reason why this is happening and why things feel so flammable. (laughs) All you have to do is go online for five minutes right now to see that there are a lot of feels about what's happening without people having a lot of information. 
as credible of a news journalist as you are, Roxy, and I know you're drawing on credible sources like Religion News Service, which is covering this conflict daily, in part because there are these religious dimensions to the story Mm -hmm. that need to be drawn out. But we also thought it would be wise to bring someone on the podcast who is much closer and on the ground to the situation and has had the life experience and the professional leadership to help us go beyond the headlines and make sure that our feelings are actually informed by history and context and understanding. Our guest today is Greg Khalil, co-founder and president of Telos, a peacemaking nonprofit that helps Americans show solidarity with both Palestinians and Israelis amid this incredibly complicated conflict. Our Palestinian friends within Israel are terrified right now. In the West Bank, there's reprisal attacks. I think most of our Jewish friends are feeling incredible trauma, not just in Israel, but around the world. This is the deadliest massacre since the Holocaust. Greg has been doing peacemaking work in the Holy Land since the early 2000s. We cover a lot of ground with him. But first, let's give a shout out to the organization that makes this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. This is one of those moments where the value of RNS is super apparent, and it's so Mm -hmm. important to pay attention to what's happening there. The website, religionnews.com, you'll find a lot of coverage on how religion is impacting the current conflict in the Holy Land. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. This is a weird thing to bring up on this episode, <laughs> but we did want to put another call for your weird dating stories. We're excited to share them on a future episode of the show. So hit us up on the new Saved by the City hotline and leave us a voice memo. Tell us your weird dating stories. Go to speakpipe.com slash Saved by the City. That's speakpipe.com slash Saved by the City. We'd also still love to hear from you via good old email. Shoot us a note at sptcpodcast at religionnews.com. When you hear the word land, what images come to mind? Your local garden, the environment, Mother Earth, 40 acres and a mule. What if I told you that our thoughts about land are rooted in religion and those religious ideas have transformed American politics? This is Complexified a podcast for the religiously curious and politically frustrated. In this season of Complexified, we will unearth the different and often unexamined beliefs about land in search of new paths toward a common good. I'm your host, Amanda Henderson, coming to you from the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology and in partnership with Religion News Service. Follow Complexified on your favorite podcast app. As a normie, I get a lot of my news from the New York Times and and Religion News Service. Both good sources. Both good sources. (laughs) The Times is like a good place to start. Mm -hmm. And of course, they have had probably hundreds at this point of, you know, reported stories on the current conflict. 
and they have a great piece that's just like, here's what you need to know about mm-hmm. the Israel-Hamas war. So I found the reporting really helpful. And then I made the mistake of wandering into the comments section. Oh, Caitlin. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. And what was so interesting, so there were almost a thousand comments left, which is like a pretty high number for a Times piece. But also I noticed that the comments had been closed. Mm. I had never seen that before on the Times website. And I felt like that was mm-hmm. really telling that there must have been something about the conversation. <laughs> conversation feels like a very generous way of describing the comment <laughs> section. Um, something about the discourse in that section that just captured these incredibly intense debates among Americans Mm -hmm. who are following what's going on. And it really just underscored for me how hard it is to first know what is true, because even people in the comment section were taking to task the times for the way that they were reporting on this. Right. Right. But also this immense pressure to figure out, well, which side am I on? What is the accurate view of this? Mm -hmm. Like, picking your side and taking root there and not being able to hold space for the complexity of the conflict and for the reality that there are innocent people on both sides of the conflict. Yeah. Uh, We've had to shut off our comments on a few Mm. articles, especially some of our opinion pieces, but yeah, I mean, this is ugly. I, I feel like I haven't seen this kind of like, charged polarization maybe since like the BLM protests after George Mm -hmm. Floyd but even then I don't know this feels different I think part of what feels different about this to me is that it doesn't fall along party lines in the way that you expect a lot of other debates in America to go you know like we see some of it Mm -hmm. being clear-cut like Republicans have usually taken like a very pro-Israel stance, but you see Democrats really split over this. You see the left sort of fracturing over this because there has been just like an, a really emerging pro-Palestinian liberation voice in the left um, for years and mm-hmm. just a real concern for Palestinians. But you also have like a lot of people who are supportive of Jews and of the right for Israel to exist. And also like most American Jews are Democrats. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a piece today in the New York Times also that was just talking about how many American Jews feel sort of betrayed by the left Mm -hmm. in this moment. And you see a ton of this like major conflict happening on college campuses. It doesn't fall along our normal political lines in the U.S., which I think is part of the sort of like tension and the heightened emotional reality around this. It strikes me in times of really intense national, international conflict when we're already working with like, you know, centuries old divides, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. the history that is coming to the conversation we're having right now, that in moments of sadness, anger, fear, grief, there's something comforting about like choosing your side and choosing Mm. your people. And like, (laughs) this is my soapbox or these are the people Mm -hmm. 
who I affiliate with, this is what they believe. So this is what I'm going to believe too. Yeah. And it's easy to jump on the already existing soapbox instead of maybe stepping back and saying, maybe I don't need a soapbox right now. Like maybe my role right now is to listen and try to understand and honor the incredible complexity of this and honor the fact that we're talking at the end of the day about a lot of human beings. We're we're talking about human lives, people made in the image of God. They will continue to die. And it seems like maybe now is not the time for the pre-existing soapbox. As hard as that can be not to jump in when we're feeling angry and grieved. Yeah. But when you go online, there are so many takes. So, so many takes and so much misinformation. I mean, I think this has been one of the hardest things about this particular conflict has been it's very fast moving. It's incredibly complex and it is not helped that all of the social media sites are just kind of mismanaged and unhinged at the moment. Mm -hmm. And they've completely sort of redone how they how their algorithms prioritize news. And Mm -hmm. so you're seeing just the opinions or the horrifying videos or, you know, just the things that get clicks. Those are being pushed way up and not all of it is accurate and not all of it is like contextualized in any kind of helpful way. Mm -hmm. And then we have to do all of this like labor in our heads to be like, okay, is that real? Isn't it real? What story is it backing up? How do I know? Where do I go to confirm this? What's the source? Yes. Well, it's not easy. Our listeners can probably tell, and this has happened before in the podcast, but like this is a hard topic to even talk about because certain words and phrases and framings people will hear and put you in that camp. And like mm-hmm. the most important thing we're trying to do is to be accurate. And we hope that we have developed enough goodwill as professional writers and journalists that our listeners trust us that that is where we're coming from. And even with that goodwill, there is still this loaded sense that words and framings, how we talk about this carries a certain assumptions about the world and reality that people are quick to try to sort out and slot you into, Oh, you're on their side or you're on my side. Mm Mm-hmm. Then in the meantime, you know, this horrific loss of life continues to unfold. We're having these debates, but people are, people are dying. Yes. And I think part of why it felt important to do this episode is like, we want to bring accuracy and we want to also help people just like know that you can think Like you can hold these different ideas and this is the formation part of it, right? Like as Christians, like how, Mm -hmm. how can we hold the hope of peace? How can we hold the hope of reconciliation? How can we hold the value of all human beings are made in the image of God and Palestinian or Israeli, like Mm -hmm. beloved and precious Mm -hmm. and a tragedy when they die? Now we're preaching. We should hand the mic over to Greg and let him preach instead. Exactly. But um, one thing I was really struck by in our conversation with Greg that's coming up, he cautioned people to recognize that you're 
Israeli friends, your Jewish friends, your Palestinian, your Muslim friends, or even just the people you might be following online and trying to pay attention to, they are all really raw right now. And he reminded us that like these people have suffered a lot of trauma, not only right now, but in their life and in the history of their people. And that it can be easy to quickly jump on what they say and judge, but this is mm-hmm. really a time to listen to them and to listen to their grief, their rage, their fear. And that's it, to just listen. One of the people Greg introduces us to is Roni, an Israeli woman who lives on the border of Gaza and has been working as a peacemaker for a long time. Her town was attacked on October 7th by Hamas, and she survived, but many of her friends and neighbors did not. And yet she's trying to continue in her work as a peacemaker. Here's what she had to say. There's nothing, nothing, nothing at all that can justify what they did. And yet, I know what they've been through. They're people hurting, disillusioned, um, desperate. And desperate people are dangerous. Roni is the kind of person that Greg and his organization Telos works with, both in Israel and in the West Bank and Gaza. And that's, again, part of the reason we really wanted to talk to Greg. Telos, the organization that he co-founded, they consider themselves to be pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, pro-American, and pro-peace. And one of the things that I think is cool, just in terms of like the story of Telos, is that the two co-founders, like... In many ways, you couldn't like map them into more different places. Greg, he was a lawyer. He's born in California, but he's partly of Palestinian Christian ancestry. Um, he's a longtime Democrat. He used to be a former advisor to Palestinian leaders on peace negotiations with Israel. Whereas Todd Dethridge, his co-founder, is an evangelical Christian from Arkansas. He was a former chief of staff to a Republican senator, and he served on the George W. Bush administration at the State Department. So ideologically incredibly different, but Mm -hmm. they became friends in the early 2000s and realized that they sort of shared a common understanding of America's role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and a shared value in seeking some kind of peace solution. Mm. And they started this organization, Telos, which the main thing that Telos has focused on is taking people from mostly from the States, but other parts of the world, too, on these sort of educational pilgrimages. They took a lot of evangelical pastors. That was one place that they focused to the Holy Land and organized these educational pilgrimages where they heard voices from both sides of this conflict. And were really sort of the goal was to learn these foundational values of peacemaking and how to do that. Mm. So that's why, you know, I think both of us was, we were like, Greg, right? We need to bring Greg on. Greg's the person. No pressure, Greg, but it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Greg. Thank you for having me. I know a lot will probably happen between recording this with you and releasing it. So I don't want to get too in the weeds about like what's happening right this minute. But I would love to hear from you about what you're hearing from your friends in Israel and in the West Bank and Gaza. I know you have people in your organization that you work with on 
both sides of this conflict and living in in places that have both been really impacted by this. So I would love to just hear from you what they're telling you and how they're experiencing this. Thanks, Roxy. I also have family on the ground as yeah. well. This is an incredibly difficult time for all of my team personally, and mm-hmm. especially those who are living on the ground. We're hearing so many reports from our partners on the ground. Um, one in Natif Hasara, which is one of the first Israeli communities to have been attacked by the mm. Gaza border, had 15 of her neighbors slaughtered. She has three adult oh children living in the, the Moshav, and one of her daughters survived mm. by hiding in a kitchen cupboard for hours as terrorists were ransacking the home. We have partners um, you know, in Gaza. Uh, one of our grantee institutions is the Ahli Anglican uh, Hospital mm-hmm. in Gaza that was bombed. And there are a lot of disputes around sort of the facts around that. But the bottom line is, you know, low end is 100 to 300 people dead amid this incredible campaign in Gaza. I'd love to talk a little bit more about Gaza. My grandmother Mm -hmm. came from Gaza and also full disclosure, I formally advised the Palestinian negotiators a long time ago as a young lawyer. And one of the things I worked on was the Israeli removal of settlements and military bases from Gaza. And part of what we're seeing today was predicted over and over many years ago. So as horrific as it is, we have to understand if we're really trying to save lives, how it is that we got here, how it is that we're still here, and what are the risks of action in this particular moment if we really want to save lives, get hostages home, protect people, and work to worlds of mutual flourishing. Some other things that I'm hearing, you know, um, our Palestinian friends within Israel are terrified right now. In the West Bank, there's reprisal attacks. I think most of our Jewish friends are feeling incredible trauma, not just in Israel, but around the world. This is the deadliest massacre since the Holocaust. And so people are feeling unsafe here in America, dropping their kids off at school. Meanwhile, Chicago, a six-year-old Palestinian boy, stabbed 26 times. And my family in Bethlehem is just cowering, absolutely terrified. We've been through a lot. I've lived Mm -hmm. there for years of my life, and no one has ever had this much fear. This is a huge question, and we won't be able to get to the full answer today, but you just underscored how important it is to understand the history and the context to understand what has happened over the last two weeks. Give our listeners a primer on Israeli-Palestinian relations before this. What should people know and keep in mind, and maybe especially regarding the current Israeli government, which we understand has been controversial, and then also Hamas and its role in Gaza? Sure. That's a really big question that we're all going to be learning a lot more about in the coming months and years, including me. But Mm. some of the basics that I think it's important to understand, the attacks carried out by Hamas against Israeli civilians, terrorist attacks, and I will use that word, even though I do have problems with how that word is used, it's entirely appropriate in this instance. That wasn't the beginning. The beginning goes much further back. Now, when you go further back for that context, I want to state unequivocally upfront that contextualizing doesn't excuse. It doesn't make Mm. anything that Hamas did right 
or okay. It does not justify. The unjustifiable cannot justify the unjustifiable. So I want to state that up front. Now, to get to your question, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a modern conflict. We hear all sorts of talk about it going back thousands of years. Not true. It is true that there's a long history of conflict within this region that we so call that we call the, the Holy Land. And that's because this is the place that human beings first settled. And everywhere human beings settle, they fight. There's also a long history of people actually getting along. Models of multi-faith, multi-partisan coexistence, if you will. Those words are perhaps mm. not the perfect adjectives for it. But there are other counter models to conflict there. What you're seeing on October 7th, the modern Israeli-Palestinian conflict is really about 100 years old. And it's a clash of two nationalisms, Arab slash Palestinian nationalism and Zionism, which is Jewish nationalism. This idea that people like the Jewish people, the French people, the Italian people, they need a state of their own. Many people here don't realize, but that's a pretty modern concept. It's born in 18th, 19th century Europe. And there are many good things with nationalism. You know, the idea of citizenship, that it, you don't have a king, you don't have somebody ruling over you, but at least aspirationally, everyday people are stakeholders in the powers that rule over their lives. But there were many negative things about nationalism and ultranationalism that we see throughout our world today. And one of the first questions that comes with nationalism is, okay, nation state for who? Who's French? Who's Italian? Who's Israeli? And this is the big sort of like real underlying tension in Israel-Palestine that this region, which historically had populations, local Jewish, Christian, Muslim populations in this place called Palestine, never a state, but a region with localized identities. Suddenly, the people there kind of were turned against one another once Zionism was born and a Zionist movement to create an Israeli state there and came into conflict with Arab nationalism at the end of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. So maybe that's a little further back than you wanted to go. But one last piece of context coming into here that's incredible, and then I'd like to speak a little bit more about Gaza, is the fact that what you had happen over the last 75 years, like since the birth of Israel in 1948, the birth of Israel was accompanied by something called the Nakba or catastrophe for Palestinians. This is really important to understand how you're Jewish and how your Palestinian Arab friends are reacting today. So this was an historic moment for Jewish people three years after the last concentration camp was closed. Israel arises as a new nation state in the, the birthplace of Judaism. But for Palestinians, more than three quarters of the local Palestinian population, Muslim and Christian, was kicked out, expelled from their homes. There were massacres by Jewish militias, and they were never allowed to return. Gaza, this little tiny area on the Mediterranean Sea, gorgeous area, rich history, second most significant library outside of Alexandria in antiquity, want you to know the good stuff about it. But what you need to know in 1948, in a period of three months, its population tripled. 80,000 people had to host 200,000 refugees from what became Israel, many of them from the lands where the massacres on October 7th occurred. And the last 17, 16 years, really, they've been closed under an almost total blockade. And so the context here is this impoverished, battered population 
has been living under a really brutal reality for the last 16 years. And the Palestinian people in general have been living without sovereignty, right? It doesn't sort of excuse the, the incompetency of their leadership, but they've been living in a situation, controversial word, but if you look at Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Beit Selim, human, uh, an Israeli human rights organization, apartheid, where Israel controls one population living under it. And, um, and so there's this reality, this structural reality there um, that again, doesn't excuse what happened on October 7th, but is important to understand if we want to get out of this mess. One of the things that you do at Telos is try to help people hear from people living in Israel and people living in Palestine. And you want people to be able to empathize or to understand perspectives on both sides of what is very often referred to as an intractable conflict. And there's a belief that you have that it's worth it to do that. So can you talk to us a little bit about why that's important to keep in mind now, as well as why that's such a, an essential value of your organization? Sure. What we work to do is to unleash the power and agency of all of us to not just confront injustice, but to build a world in which everyone can flourish. Our work got started in America's relationship to Israel-Palestine. What may be hard to see is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict isn't just between Israelis and Palestinians. In fact, it's a geopolitical conflict in which there are many proxy wars that are intersecting right now. That's what makes it such a dangerous moment. And Americans, we've adopted this into our culture, our politics, our houses of worship, especially our churches, I think. Mm. So we have a responsibility here. And so one of the things is like, I'm going to be very open about my opinions, but one of our critical principles, the first principle of peacemaking, we have these six principles and practices that you can see on our website. And I think your listeners might might find them helpful, not just for this issue, but for many issues. Mm -hmm. But the first principle seems pretty obvious, but it's important to state, and it's growth, that change is always possible, positive change. And the idea that if these are seemingly intractable conflicts, they're not going to go away on their own. They need our attention. We can't avoid the difficult stuff. Rather, we have to have these conversations that actually might heal us if we start engaging them, right? But we just don't know how. There's a pastor in Bethlehem named Mitri Rahib, and he has a great quote about this. If you don't take anything else from the podcast, take it. He said, hope is what you do. This idea that hope is not an emotion or an adjective, but it's something active. And so in the face of moments like this, we have to be hopeful, but we also have to be humble because as much as I'm personally affected by this, my story is not the only story. Mm -hmm. Justice would not be getting freedom for my family who live in Bethlehem in a horrible situation if it meant that the tables were reversed and that their Jewish neighbors were living in a similar situation now. We need to be working for a situation in which everyone flourishes, has the security, dignity, freedom, equality, justice that all people deserve, both Israelis and Palestinians. And that's not all lives matter. Mm -hmm. I mentioned a friend who had her neighbors slaughtered. Her name is Roni from Natif Hasara. And she she puts this in very, very compelling ways before this October 7th, as well as after. She mm -hmm. asks the question, mm -hmm. how can I deny my neighbor what 
I know is necessary for myself. She asked that question living on the Gaza border when 2 million people, 50% children, 80% refugees were denied basic rights and the ability to leave. And for your skeptical listeners, I want to quote her about something else. I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, okay, you're the one who calls me naive, but you're the naive ones to think that we can keep doing this to each other and produce any other result. And that's the fact of the matter here is what you see in Gaza today was an absolute surprise. It was a failure of massive intelligence failure of military intelligence, but it was also predicted for years, not just by me, but by President George Bush, Secretary Condoleezza Rice, Tony Blair, the Israeli Shin Bet, which are their equivalent of the CIA, all sorts of people. When you create these situations of structural violence, one people ruling over another, nothing good will ever come out of it. And so my concern today is like our response to this, we're stepping right into a trap. We're stepping into a big trap right now. And the response is how we got here. This is not how we're going to get out. And so we need to pay attention. I want to ask your listeners, if there's still fighting going on, call for a ceasefire. It's not the answer. Ceasefire isn't going to bring hostages home. Ceasefire isn't going to solve the root causes. But we need to act wisely, wisely in a way that is going to prevent further unimaginable harm. You mentioned, Greg, the proxy wars that are connected to this conflict and how those proxy wars have spilled into American life and our churches and communities. And we see that so strongly and so discouragingly on social media, which these platforms are spreading a lot of misinformation. They're obviously incentivizing content that is not based in fact or accurate reporting, but is fueling rage, anger, hatred, which gets more clicks. So for people who want to respond responsibly and be informed, what would you recommend? How do people engage and find accurate information when there's so much misinformation out there? Aside from ceasefire, the first practice of peacemaking is listen to understand. Okay? This is really critical. There's a wonderful quote from the theologian Paul Tillich. He says, love's first act is to listen. It's not the last act, but it's the first act. And we know how transformational it is when we're really heard, not when we're agreed with, right? And so I mean this on a personal level, that in the relationships in our lives, when you have people like me who are really suffering and not you know, emotionally fully present right now, one of the things that you can do and learn is just really deeply listen right? But it's also listening to this conflict. There's a lot of complexity. We talk about proxy wars. Maybe some of your listeners don't really know what a proxy war is. You know, Ukraine is an example. U.S. and West is fighting Russia in Ukraine. We're not fighting Russia directly. Mm -hmm. But in Israel-Palestine, there are a number of converging interests right now that I don't want to get lost into in, in this question because we can learn about that later. But my point is, this is a marathon not a sprint, this marathon of listening. The second practice of peacemaking is one that I think will also be very helpful to your listeners right now as they navigate this. And so that that practice is hold competing perspectives in tension. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful quote from Niels Bohr, the quantum physicist. I think you guys will love this because he said, you know, and he was describing the subatomic world. He was the pioneer of 
quantum physics, Niels Bohr said the opposite of fact is falsehood, mm -hmm. but the opposite of one profound truth may very well be another profound truth. And it's so important when you're listening deeply to recognize that what you're feeling and what you know to be true, it doesn't mean the person who's speaking is lying. They may actually be speaking truth too. Mm, and so uh -huh. in this learning process, we have to be able to hold that multiple perspectives are valuable if we're, if we're working towards mutual flourishing, that many things can be true at the same time. Unfortunately, 10-7 is ushering in a new era for all of us. Our Jewish mm. friends will never be the same. Our Palestinian and Arab friends will never be the same if this hopefully ends tomorrow, and it won't. But this mm -hmm. is likely going to become something much greater. So for those who are not well-informed, sit back and listen before you speak. We have resources that we're putting out that you can use, and there are a lot of other or organizations that I'm happy to direct folks to as you learn to be active, but really keep that posture of listening, mm -hmm. remembering that love's first act is to listen, but not the last. This is going to touch on some of what you've already talked about, but I do think that in the last two weeks, we've seen a lot of maybe binary thinking where it's like, if you show support for Israel, then that means you're against Palestinian liberation. If you show support for Palestinian civilians, then that means you're anti-Semitic. And I mean, we're seeing this at like all kinds of levels where there's just a lot of anger. And I mean, I'm talking about the States, which I know is its own world. That's it's not the whole world. So, but I think for a lot of people that leaves you feeling helpless, like you have to pick a side or something. So how do you think about and how are you all encouraging people to sort of, to keep a nuance and to avoid this binary thinking and also maybe even how to engage with people who are in that space that are feeling very raw and very like defensive about their position? First, understand that your friends and family who are feeling raw are feeling raw for a reason. Mm-hmm. Put yourself in their shoes. And your job is not to convince them, especially if you haven't lived their reality. And so they're speaking something that may feel very difficult for you to receive and may, in fact, be contrary to your values, not just to your beliefs about objective reality. But they're coming from a place of deep trauma. And for Palestinians and Israelis, that trauma goes back generations. So I just want mm -hmm. you to Give your friends and family grace and to also give yourself grace in this process as you're growing, as you're learning, as you're listening. I think what's helpful for us, the principles and practices of peacemaking, however, provide a framework and you may have another framework that has some level of accountability to a set of values and questions that can help guide us. And so what I mean by that, for example, is the third principle of peacemaking, this, this framework, is justice. I'm here in Selma, Alabama today, literally at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Mm -hmm. And justice for Dr. King, he said, peace is not the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. He was linking these concepts. And so I'm bringing a concept like that in because it's important to think that like one of our tendencies is just to completely step out and turn away. But this is something that we're implicated in. Israeli-Palestinian conflict would not exist today were it not 
for the role of the U.S. in a way that didn't promote mm. mutual flourishing of Israelis and Palestinians. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict would not exist today were it not for a theology born in the church many hundreds of years ago that has shaped how the European church has engaged the entire world, hmm. including America, you know, in horrible ways. Now, that's not the only witness. There are so many witnesses here, like at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge of so many people like John Lewis and Dr. King who walked across this bridge and showed us what good trouble means, what it means to live out our values. But sometimes it's really hard to ask those questions. So I don't want to come off with a hard pitch for the principles and practices of peacemaking, but I do want to mention that having a tool that allows us to look back at our values, remind us what are we pointing towards? The sixth principle, mutual flourishing, or what I would use in my progressive political circles I would say systemic justice, not systemic injustice, but what does the world look like when mm. our laws, our culture, our attitudes, our institutions conspire to maximize human agency, security, and flourishing? That's a world that we're working for. And that is actually, I believe, possible. We've seen such transformation. It's hard for me to preach this in this moment mm -hmm. because I believe we're going into a place that is so much darker. Right. But even in places like Rwanda, here in the U.S., even though we're still going through difficulties, in Israel-Palestine previously, there is transformation. And that transformation happens when good people of goodwill who know they don't know everything, who aren't trying to be heroes, who aren't these big-ass celebrities, whatever, but they're doing the work. And that work means really understanding how to live out their values, not a hundred years from now, but in the current moment. I was talking to a Palestinian in the West Bank this week for a story, and I asked him if peace or a two-state solution feels more hopeless or further away than ever right now. And he said, no, he told me um, that now is the time to make peace. And he said, right now, everyone really has gotten the lesson that security is not the answer. It's not going to work. What do you think? I mean, you've been in this for a long time. As people are imagining like what could be, or if they're even thinking like, what do I even hope for here? Is there a two-state solution or any kind of a solution that feels anywhere in the realm of possibility at this point? I don't know. I would echo the words of my father who passed last year. I have to tell you a couple words about him. I know I'm answering all your questions way too long, but this is, this is one of those moments you can edit me out. But he was <laughs> born in 1927 in Beit Sahur, which is right next to Bethlehem, in a one-room stone house that was built in the style of homes dating back to Jesus's time. So Jews at the time, they lived with the manger in the actual house. He was built on Orthodox Christmas night, 500 feet from where Jesus was born. Mm -hmm. And his name was Isa, which means Jesus in Arabic. My dad became a really prominent theologian, even though he dropped out of school in seventh grade to farm our family's fields. And one of the things he would always say to me which I believe to be true, even though I never got the same faith that he has, is to seek peace and pursue it, especially when it seems impossible. Mm. Hold that. Seek peace and pursue it, especially when it seems impossible. These are the moments we need to rise to the occasion. 
we won't know how to live out our values entirely perfectly. We're not going to know how to say every word that needs to be said. We're not going to find the right words. We're going to make such terrible mistakes. But right now, are you paying attention to people who are trying to save lives or to justify killing? Hmm. Are you sitting on the sidelines? What are you going to do? There's a very simple answer. It's seek peace and pursue it, especially when it seems impossible. I've lived in some really horrible situations. I know that I don't have hope most of the time. That's why I come back to to that quote, hope is what you do. So when I feel completely hopeless as I do today, I get on a podcast with you, right? (laughs) We have a chance to do something together. This is a moment in which people are asking these questions. This is a moment in which the world is transforming. This is our opportunity to say that the things that we believe in, the things that matter most, the dignity of human life, are things that we are going to stand up for, even when we don't know how. Seek peace and pursue it, especially when it seems impossible. That's this moment. Thank you again, Greg. I really appreciate you just taking some time and meeting with us today. And Mm -hmm. I know this is not easy. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and perspective and joining us today. Thank you. And thank you for listening and caring. I mean, that is the first step to actually building a world that may be better for all of us. And we still have that opportunity. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone. And Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.